Welcome to episode 11 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. When it comes to the major news stories at the present time, Ian Todd has decided to stand down from his role as CEO at the Security Industry Authority due to significant changes in personal circumstances. He will now leave the regulator of the private security industry in mid-October. Todd joined the SIA in February last year, having previously served as Deputy Director General at the Independent Office for Police Conduct. Across the years, Todd has held a number of board-level roles in professional regulation, including within the health and legal sectors. He has also spent time in central government with the Cabinet Office. He boasts extensive experience experience of dealing with the public in a frontline role, as his first career was with the NHS Ambulance Service. Throughout his near 15 years in the service, he was a qualified paramedic and held a number of roles to direct the level, including as part of the senior gold command team during the 7-7 London bombings. Todd holds a number of academic qualifications, including a law degree from the University of Wales and an MSc degree in business management gained with the Open University. Speaking about his departure from the SIA, Todd explained, and I quote, it has been an honour and a privilege to lead the SIA over the past 18 months, and I'm proud of what we've achieved together, particularly in terms of rising to meet the challenges of COVID-19. While I'm disappointed that I will not see our corporate plan through to completion, I remain positive that the foundations are strong and that I will be able to look back at some point in the future and see an even stronger organisation as a result. I would like to thank the Security Industry Authority staff and all of the companies with which it works for making my time here such a positive experience. Elizabeth France, chair of the SIA, responded, We're sorry that for personal reasons, Ian has decided not to continue as our CEO. He's an excellent CEO and has played an important part in the development of the SIA, leading it through a challenging period. We're keen to see the plans he has put in place delivered and shall immediately appoint one of our directors as acting CEO in order to ensure that no momentum is lost while we conduct a formal recruitment process. The regulator itself is currently in the midst of changing the qualifications needed for an SIA licence. This follows a review of the licence link qualifications. As a result, the regulator is now launching a public consultation on top-up training for SIA licensed door supervisors and security officers. The top-up training itself will include key elements of the new content that the SIA is introducing to licensed link qualifications in April next year. The regulator has developed top-up training to make sure current door supervisor and security guarding license holders have the same basic skills and knowledge at their fingertips as new entrants achieving the updated qualifications. From October next year, door supervisors and security officers will need to complete top-up training before they renew their license. The SIA is now inviting stakeholders to have their say and to take part in the consultation process, which will continue until the 25th of September. Tony Holyland, Head of Quality and Standards for the SIA, has stated the new licensed link qualifications will better equip operatives to work in the private security industry. They reflect what we've learned from extensive industry consultation and engagement. He continued, by introducing this top-up training, we'll be bringing the skills of existing license holders up to date. Our aim is to improve the basic skills, knowledge and understanding of security operatives such that they can do their jobs more effectively. This will help to improve community safety and also protect the public in the UK. Further, Holy Land observed, a key element of our role as a regulator is to work with the industry to raise standards in private security. The new requirements will help us to achieve this aim. The SIA is including the following in top-up training. For door supervisors, there will be an emergency first aid at work qualification. This is required to take top-up training, instruction on the use of specialist security equipment, updated terror threat awareness education, and also physical intervention skills training both knowledge-based and practical. For security officers, there will also be an emergency first aid at work qualification. Again, this is required to take top-up training. Knowledge of physical intervention and updated terror threat awareness are also part of the mix. 
Provisional data from police forces in England and Wales shows that police recorded crime is 7% lower than in the same period for 2019, with lockdown measures beginning to ease. Snapshot figures based on preliminary police recorded crime provided to the National Police Chiefs Council from 43 forces in England and Wales, excluding fraud which is recorded centrally by action fraud, cover the four weeks to 2nd of August compared with the same period in 2019. This is the fifth crime trends update since the beginning of lockdown restrictions across England and Wales and indicates certain crime trends returning towards pre-lockdown levels. Previous reporting showed a 28% reduction for the four weeks to 12th of April, a 25% fall for the four weeks to the 10th of May, an 18% drop in the four weeks to the 7th of June, and a 12% decrease in recorded crime for the four weeks up to 5th of July. Marked reductions were again recorded for residential burglary, vehicle crime, including the theft of and from a vehicle, assaults, including both grievous bodily harm and actual bodily harm, robbery and shoplifting. Police forces have also continued to observe decreases, albeit at lower rates than previously reported, in 999 and 101 call volumes by 10% and 12% respectively. Assaults on emergency services workers witnessed a 31% rise compared to the same period last year. This is a snapshot of an offence type which is typically recorded in low volumes. As a result, data may fluctuate between snapshots. The rise in assaults is largely due to increases in assaults without injury, which may be driven by scenarios such as common assaults on staff. Speaking about the figures, National Police Chiefs Council Chair Martin Hewitt observed, and I quote, one consequence of the lockdown restrictions was a reduction in crime. Sadly, we're now seeing crime returning to the levels we witnessed in 2019. Police forces are busy tackling and preventing crime and providing a police service to their communities, while at the same time continuing to play their part in the national effort to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Hewitt went on to state, I'm disgusted to see an increase in assaults on emergency services workers who are on the front line in protecting all of us, including from this deadly virus. We will use the full force of the law to prosecute anyone who uses violence against those who are on the front line. Forces continue to benefit from a low officer and staff absence figure of 4.7% right across the UK. In total, 18,683 notices have been recorded as having been issued under the Health Protection Regulations for England and Wales between Friday the 27th of March and Monday the 17th of August. In the last four-week period, 13 fines were issued by police forces in England. No fines were issued in Wales under these regulations during this period. 36 fines have been issued by police forces during localised restrictions in line with regulations laid for each affected area. 46 fixed penalty notices were issued between 15th of June and 17th of August for breaches of the face coverings regulations. 38 of these fines were issued against the regulations concerning wearing a face covering on public transport. Further, eight of the fines were issued against the regulations concerning the wearing of a face covering in a relevant place, such as in a retail outlet. In this reporting period, three fines were issued to those failing to self-isolate after arriving in England. These were issued in the Lincolnshire, Merseyside and Sussex Police jurisdictional areas. This only reflects fines issued by territorial police forces and doesn't include those from UK border force. Hewitt stated, The coronavirus is still a real and deadly threat. The restrictions across the UK are in place to limit the spread of the virus and save lives. Large gatherings both indoors and outdoors are still unlawful and it's mandatory to wear face coverings on public transport, in shops and in some other enclosed spaces. Other local restrictions apply in some parts of the country. He went on to comment, We all have a role to play when it comes to limiting the spread of this deadly virus, so everyone should familiarise themselves with public health measures that are in place locally. Police officers will continue to be out and about in their communities, all the while engaging with, educating and encouraging people to act responsibly to stop the spread of this virus. Patrols are being stepped up in problem areas. We will enforce the regulations where necessary. Those who flout the regulations risk a fine of £100, which then halves to £50 if the fine is paid within 14 days. Those organising or facilitating unlawful gatherings face fines of up to £10,000. As restrictions ease across the country, concluded Hewitt, people will want to go out and enjoy themselves, but this needs to be done in a socially responsible manner, within the law and with due regard for everyone's safety. 
Our first guest on episode 11 of the Security Matters podcast is Tony Porter. Tony was appointed Surveillance Camera Commissioner at the Home Office back in March 2014. Benefiting from a combination of business and law enforcement expertise, Tony is an intelligence specialist having gained experience in this field within the financial sector and is also a retired senior police leader. Indeed, he's a proud holder of the Queen's Police Medal. Tony's experience spans community and business engagement, international counter-terrorism and also serious and organised crime. His current role is focused on encouraging compliance with the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice and also continually reviewing how the code is working. Earlier this week, I spoke with Tony about several key issues, among them the biggest challenges facing the security industry at present, and also the use of artificial intelligence when it comes to the surveillance sector itself. Tony, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. When your spell as the UK Surveillance Camera Commissioner began, you said that you wouldn't remain in post unless you could make a difference. Do you believe that you have made a difference? Well, Brian, that, that seems such an awful long time ago, maybe seven years ago. Uh, well, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I do believe we have. It's been a long, hard road. When I took over, the, the world of analogue was still strident. Digital was moving along, but it, it hadn't really taken the, the industry by its grip. Artificial intelligence was a, a mere twinkle in the eye of the motherboard. And we were looking at, you know, what does regulation look like moving forward? But I guess in direct answer to your question, yes, I think I have. I, I introduced the National Surveillance Camera Strategy over three years ago. I think that has been significant in terms of bringing together police, local authorities, more importantly, manufacturers, installers, integrators. And we now have a harmony where not just policy develops, but actually the thinking across the industry is informed by by every piece. So that, that's the first big hit, I think. Within that a certification process that is branded with the commissioner's emblem so that people, particularly the buyers, can recognise it. It reflects the gold standard of the government. And I suppose if, if you drill down even further, what, you know, what sort of things have, have you really made a difference? One of the, the first battles I had was with um, uh, policing in terms of automatic number plate recognition, probably the largest database, non-military database in Western Europe capable of capturing 50, 60 billion pieces of data a day, automatic number plate recognition. I managed to persuade the police to reduce their retention from two years to one. There was some resistance at the get-go, but actually what happened was they've ended up with a system that's more manageable, it's more in line with other databases, such as communications and intercepts and so on and so forth. So that was a big hit. And I guess finally, Brian, I look at the police and the local authorities who are the main state actors in the world of surveillance, and the police have been phenomenal in working with us. They are introducing a service level agreement. They have completed a survey that demonstrates a very high compliance rate with my code of practice and then in turn the Data Protection Act. And also the local authorities, I conducted a survey last year with them. We have had a similar outtake from that and I will be publishing that report before I finish my commission, which is currently scheduled for the 10th of December. I have actually had a couple of extensions over the last six months, so uh, I am thinking that's pretty much it for me from the 10th of December. What do you believe are the biggest surveillance challenges facing the security industry at present? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Brian. There are huge challenges, but actually the flip side to that coin is that those challenges represent opportunities. So let me tell you a little bit what I mean by that. 
Video surveillance systems are now ubiquitous. They are everywhere. When I first took my commission, the you, you mentioned CCTV. You didn't even mention video surveillance systems. People would think of the camera on the wall. They'd think of the grainy image. We're now looking at body-worn cameras, at drones, at cameras that are supported by biometric technology, whether that's facial recognition, whether it's gait analysis. And even deeper than that, you've got technology that can ide- identify uh, vascular traits, iris traits, iris traits, the, the eyeball. So that opens up a phenomenal number of challenges, but opportunities. In direct answer to your question and challenges, well, the regulatory confusion is really key. I am a big player in this. In fact, it was identified at the Court of Appeal in the recent trial uh, or uh, hearing on uh, facial recognition that the Surveillance Camera Commissioner regulates the, the advanced artificial intelligence element, particularly in relation to facial recognition. But others do as well. The Biometric Commissioner, whilst not directly legislative involved, is obviously a key uh, contributor to the debate. The Information Commissioner with the Data Protection Act is a key contributor to the debate, but also the Investigative Powers Commissioner. And when you get five or six regulators, when you get ethics bodies all involved, how do you as a manufacturer, as the boss of a manufacturing company, say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to make this, when actually the terrain is so foggy, you're almost like sentinels in the mist, you're almost like lookouts. How are you going to push this machine through so that you can develop this technology, which is for the good of the country, is for the good of our GDP? How are you going to develop that in a way that is compliant with regulation. So that's the first challenge, because that framework isn't as clear as it should be. I touched on ethics. Ethics is hugely important now, as as all this technology is capable of identifying biometrics. So manufacturers need to understand what modern organisations, particularly in the ethics world, are are considering. So take Ada Lovelace, take the Centre for data and ethics, they're they're looking at ethical principles, fairness, openness, justice, transparency. These are big words, but they're not to be ignored by the manufacturing company because we are in a new new realm, a new realm of understanding of what's going on. I suppose also informed understanding by the public. I'm a, a regulator in this world. I've been involved for seven years, but I'm not a scientist. And I struggle to keep abreast of all the developments, whether it's the new kit, the new software, the new capabilities, the new capacity. It's very, very difficult. So how does Joe Public do that? And under the world of GDPR, Joe Public in many occasions has to give consent and sometimes explicit consent, which is a higher level. So that's a huge challenge for everybody, not least the government in legislating for it. Finally, Brian, uh, and I apologise for the length, but it's actually such a detailed question. I think the pace and speed of the industry is is breathtaking. It's phenomenal and it's exciting. I've loved it. I really have loved it. But actually what it means is not just manufacturers moving a pace to keep in check with what customers want, but regulators such as me who are paid half-time are working full-time, writing guidance, whether it's for the police, the manufacturers, the certificate, processes. So they're the challenges, but I 
I would urge everybody to consider those challenges as business opportunities as well. Artificial intelligence is being put forward as a future of surveillance and technology in general, Tony. What do you feel will be the impact of the Bridges case on policing and wider users of automated facial recognition technology? I will not give a, a legal analysis of the Bridges case. I don't think you'd want that. It was very detailed, over 90-odd pages. But in essence, and my reading of the judgment that has been supported by many eminent lawyers is this. Whilst in Bridges, the legal framework was found to be insufficient and therefore the use of facial recognition by the police was found in those specific circumstances to be unlawful. The Court of Appeal identified just two elements, really, where it was unlawful. So it wasn't unlawful from relying on the common law or from the Protection of Freedom Act that gave birth to my role or the Data Protection Act or, indeed, more local policies that support legislation. The, The Court of Appeal were fairly happy with those areas. There were two areas they were concerned, and that was the development of the watch lists, i.e. who or which individuals are going on the computer database so that the biometric processing can compare against. That's a huge issue that I'm now working on guidance with the police to, to provide support. The other issue was where can this technology take place? And the court found that there was insufficient focus on both those areas. So I'm now going to come back to your question, which is what is the impact? Well, I have said for three or four years that this type of surveillance, whilst data protection is very important, and whilst the role of data protection as an act is influential in the processing. It's interesting, isn't it, that the court relied on the conduct to find illegality or an an unlawful processing. And the conduct is where I come in, where guidance in terms of legality, guiding principle one of my code, talks about a legitimate aim and pressing need and how is it legitimate. And we need to work very hard with the police to make sure that they have that regulation in place, that that sort of hard written word so that they can rely on. So in essence, I think uh, it's good news for the police. It's good news for those that want to see the use of this technology engaged to the support and betterment of society. I actually also think it's good news to the civil libertarians, to Liberty and Mr Bridges, who felt who, who forced a very, very strong campaign and won, because actually what they have achieved is a pulling up of what might have been a slack approach to legislation. They've enforced a requirement that will have stronger parameters, but also more important, I think Mr Bridges and Liberty have gone a long way to seeking to ensure that the public are happier and satisfied that this technology is being used effectively and not uh, like in the Wild West where it would could be run rampant to invade people's privacies. So a really interesting, it's a, it's a global first in my view to have a court of such eminence of the Court of Appeal handing down this verdict and it's one that I'm sure academics and practitioners will be poring over for, for months to come. There has been talk of one individual carrying out the role of the Surveillance Camera Commissioner and the Biometrics Commissioner simultaneously. What might that look like in practice and what would be the end result? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if you hear me sigh there. I, I, I am concerned about this proposal for, on many levels. 
You've just heard me talk about the Court of Appeal and facial recognition, where the court is saying the regulation, the the law needs to be more robust. It needs to be more capable of providing oversight and governance to the police. Well, that is mainly my role, uh, together with, with other regulators in part. But it's a very significant part of my role. It, it, it's, it's, it's a big role. But also, we're dealing with the whole uh, gamut of surveillance. And I've already touched on drones, how they can invade on civil liberties and need to be regulated. Body-worn videos with the capacity for live feeds. The integration of all these surveillance cameras and the networks and the potential for invasion and the potential for another court to say, well, hang on, what is the term of reference here and what is the where question and what is the watch list question so my view is that this role has always been a full-time role and is stretching arguably into more you then look at the biometric commissioner the biometric commissioner is sitting on post-covid a potential huge spike in areas of his work that he will be reporting on and what you're being asked then is to consider an individual come in he will be a uh, an individual who may not actually have any surveillance experience but if he does he may not have any science experience in terms of biometrics I know how long it took me to get up to speed and I know the pressure that I am under at the moment to deliver police guidance on facial recognition, guidance to the police on live um, feeds to all manner of technology. And I scratch my head and sympathise with whoever this individual is. I wish him or her the very best of luck. But I, I have to say I'm not in step with the government over its proposals. I think it's too much of an ask. Looking ahead now, Tony, when it comes to your successor, what do you believe will be the greatest challenges they're going to face? Well, the one thing I will say, Brian, is that from the video surveillance industry, from the likes of yourself, professionals right across the arena, he will not have a challenge. He or she will not have a challenge. They will have nothing but unstinting support. And that has been the experience I've had. When you consider the national strategy, where I pulled in 10 individuals to take uh, strand leads, whether it's police, local authority, civil engagement, training, cyber, all the range of issues, I have been able to bring a team of experts for zero cost that have been unstinting. So the new individual will not have that as a challenge. I think the challenge for that new individual, as I've alluded to earlier, will be technical capability, technical credibility, the ability to get a grip not just on the video surveillance industry and the, the the billions that is pumped into it and the various areas, the components that required specialist knowledge, but then actually uh, to be able to turn the other direction and look at the amazing complex of the world of biometrics and be able to provide oversight and regulation in that regard. So uh, whilst the new role will be full-time, and I think uh, that is something, I think actually when you combine the biometric commissioner's role and myself, it is still short of the hours that both Paul Wiles, the commissioner, and myself put in. So I think that's a real challenge. I think the other challenge is that the government have alluded to the fact that they want to bring in new legislation in a few years. That will require a great deal of uh, consultation, discussion, and I believe it will take a great deal of in-depth knowledge from both quarters. And I sincerely hope 
that there is sufficient oil in that can to provide the support so that at the end of the day, um, regulators are only there to serve the public. The idea here is that the public get a better service. And if the outcome of this is that, then I'll be a very pleased individual indeed. So there's some challenges there, Brian. Returning to the news now, and the insurance industry's relentless pursuit of insurance cheats to protect honest customers is delivering results, it seems, with the equivalent of nearly 300 fraudulent claims and just over 2,000 dishonest applications being detected every day. That's according to the ABI's most in-depth annual insurance fraud figures to date. There were 107,000 detected fraudulent claims, that's up 5% on 2018. The rise was mainly due to increases in motor and property scams. While the volume increased, there's been a small decrease of 2% in the value of detected claims for to £1.2 billion, the equivalent of £3.3 million uncovered every day. This resulted in a decrease in the average value of a fraudulent claim to £11,400 compared to £12,200 back in 2018. Motor insurance frauds remained the most common, up 6% in number to 58,000 on 2018, albeit their value at 605 million pounds fell slightly. Around 75% of fraudulent motor claims contain a personal injury element. This may reflect some fraudulent activity ahead of the introduction of personal injury reforms in April next year. Property fraud showed a significant increase. There were 27,000 dishonest claims detected worth £124 million. This represents a rise of 30% in number and 8% in value on 2018. The number of liability frauds fell by 14% to 19,000. This may reflect insurers clamping down on trip and slip and noise-induced hearing loss claims, as well as measures implemented by the travel sector and government to reduce dishonest gastric illness holiday claims. Improved prevention measures and better reporting reflected a significant increase in the volumes of application fraud detected, which is up over 200% on the previous year to 760,000 cases and worth £1.4 billion. Application fraud typically includes non-disclosure of previous claims. Mark Allen, the ABI's manager focused on fraud and financial crime, said, and I quote, The industry makes no apology for its relentless pursuit of insurance cheats to protect genuine customers, who end up putting the bill through their own insurance premiums. Insurers will not hesitate to ensure that fraudsters seeking to profit at the misery and expense of others will suffer severe and long-lasting consequences. Allen went on to state, Insurers know that the coronavirus crisis has led to financial hardship for some, and with scammers always preying on people's anxieties, it's now particularly important for consumers to be on their guard in relation to scams like being approached by someone offering cheap motor insurance. The golden rule is never to act in haste. If a deal is too good to be true, then it probably is. Detective Superintendent Peter Ratcliffe, head of the City of London Police's Economic Crime Unit, said, Insurance fraud is not a victimless crime and the effect of dishonest claims are felt by everyone. As well as bogus insurance claims inevitably increasing premiums for honest customers, certain tactics used by fraudsters such as crash for cash put the lives of innocent members of the public at serious risk. Ratcliffe continued, despite these encouraging figures, which show that the IFED and the insurance industry are working well to combat insurance fraud, it's vital that we don't ease up on our efforts. The fight against insurance fraud is an ongoing one, so we need to continue working together to prevent and detect this crime type and, ultimately, bring the criminals involved to justice. Ben Fletcher, director of the Insurance Fraud Bureau, observed, The ABI's latest figures help to draw attention to the clear challenges they're facing in the fight against insurance fraud. Insurance fraud is not a victimless crime because fraudsters who carry out dangerous scams like crash for cash and who deliberately damage property put lives at risk. These figures show the problem remains significant. The sad reality of this situation is that the frequency of these scams normally only increases in times of recession and financial hardship. Fletcher concluded, By dint of the public reporting evidence of insurance fraud to the Insurance Fraud Bureau's cheat line, we're able to work with insurers and the police to take action. We'll be campaigning in the months ahead to encourage more people to step forward and report insurance fraud. 
Finally, the UK's National Cyber Security Centre has issued new guidance in tandem with international allies aimed at helping organisations to stay safe from malicious cyber actors. The Joint Cyber Security Advisory entitled Technical Approaches to Uncovering and Remediating Malicious Activity has been published in conjunction with the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency in the US, the Australian Cyber Security Centre, the New Zealand National Cyber Security Centre and CERT-NZ, as well as the Canadian Communications Security Establishment. Specifically, the advisory highlights technical approaches for organisations, including those which protect all of the most critical assets, that will help to uncover malicious activity and includes mitigation steps based on current best practice. Paul Chichester, the National Cybersecurity Centre's Director of Operations, has commented, Cybersecurity is a global issue that requires a collaborative international effort to protect our most critical assets. This advisory will help organisations understand how to investigate cyber incidents and protect themselves online, and we would urge them to follow the guidance carefully. Working closely with our allies and with the help of organisations and the wider public, we will continue to strengthen our defences to make us the hardest possible target for our adversaries. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Chris Krebs concluded, this joint alert is the first of its kind for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency since its formal establishment in 2018, and one that I've aimed for since day one. With our allied cybersecurity government partners, we work together every day to help improve and strengthen the cybersecurity of organisations and sectors of our economy that are increasingly targeted by criminals and nation-states alike. Fortunately, there's strength in numbers, and this unified approach means that we're able to extend our defensive umbrella on a global scale. Readers of Security Matters can access the full advisory by visiting the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's website. The web address is www.cisa.gov. And our second guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Professor Phil Wood, Head of the School of Aviation and Security at Buckinghamshire New University. Phil is an organisational resilience specialist and also an academic. His background includes military service in various roles and the delivery and management of corporate resilience programmes for industry. He's fully committed to the ongoing progression of the higher education sector and also to finding solutions for the challenges it faces. Phil holds a master's degree in security and risk management from the University of Leicester and was awarded the MBE in Her Majesty the Queen's New Year's Honours list in 2000. In conjunction with several partner organisations, Bucks New University has just formed the Security Consortium. On that basis, I chatted with Phil to find out precisely what this new initiative is all about and also what it means for the security business sector in general. Phil, thank you very much for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. What's the idea behind the Security Consortium? Hi, Brian. Uh, well, thank, first of all, thanks for uh, for having me on the podcast. The concept really is based on a, on a few sort of premises and really looking at what's happening in the sector and what's happening more dynamically globally, really, in relation to not only security and resilience, but the training and education response to it. I started really uh, thinking about the consortium uh, in, in the context that UK-based security training and education are still pretty widely regarded to be at the forefront globally. And um, with the market continuing to widen and diversify, I thought there would be a significant opportunity to to bring something new to it. So um, I thought about really uh, the stakeholder members of the security consortium, we'll come back onto them in a, in a moment or two, I guess, but thinking about their strong reputation and customer base and their own sub- subsectors, areas of activity with their programs and the kind of programs that we do, and really thinking about combining those. We all felt that the sector would be better served by training organisations operating collaboratively, in a mutually supportive way and specifically and really for for new and much more uh, experienced sector entrants to have the best choices for development so thinking about development pathways and cross consortium opportunities so um whilst each of the stakeholders and and uh, members of the consortium are, are currently successful in their own right 
we think there's a capability to, to be brought together in a, a fair number of combinations. First of all, really as a, an equal group of members influencing the industry, tendering for contracts and so on. As individual members or subgroups of members collaborating to meet very specific requirements. As a knowledge exchange, a pool of capability for teaching and training. And also as a membership group as well. So there's quite a lot behind it and it's still developing in our, in our thought processes. But really, we, we know that harnessing our experience and influence will make an attractive proposition for organisations looking for strong training development, mentoring, consultancy and so on. How did the partners come to be involved in this initiative? Well, about um, probably about around the same time as COVID started to hit, uh, it wasn't coincidental, but I had this idea really about contacting the, the best people that I know uh, personally and professionally uh, within the sort of training and development sector and asking them to form this consortium. And I didn't really... Um, what I've just talked about in terms of the concept was it wasn't fully formed in my mind, but really I sort of scoped them out and talked to them about how they might want to bring together this collective group. So we all quickly realised that we share a similar vision and the consortium gives us a great opportunity to deliver on that. So from our point of view as a university involved, we work with these, these other companies, um, we work with them, we trust them. And they're matched partners for us, really, in sharing our vision that I've, I've kind of mentioned. So we've got Silverback Security Academy, SGW Limited, and Frontier Risk Group. And um, they're all uh, at the leading edge, as far as I'm concerned, and as we're concerned, as uh, of their particular areas. And they're continuing to grow and develop with clear, clear missions for that. So we, sh we kind of share that vision. We, we collectively identified that early on. We're really all committed to innovation, developing independence, an independent voice as well within the sector and uh, about really sort of this collective view that I've mentioned already. So we want to make the fullest possible contribution to the continuing professionalization of the industry. And it's important that we do have that shared confidence, capability and mindset. Anyone who engages with this particular partnership group is getting the keys to accessing these, these what we consider to be leadership in training, education and consultancy. And, and this really accessible, inclusive approach and, and if they're behind it all, there really is a, an altruistic view. We're not, we're all businesses. We all have to generate income, of course. But behind that as well, we really do want to contribute to this development process and to help people old and new within the sector to really develop and grow using the various uh, options that we'll be able to offer. On that note, Phil, what exactly are you aiming to achieve with the Security Consortium? What we are looking to do now together is, first of all, to really increase our already fairly significant presence in the UK and globally as well. Um, it's not just a UK-centric uh, thing. We want to develop an international footprint and, and we really want to be a, a first choice or a priority choice for those who want to work with a professional, committed, collaborative organisation with that single shared focus. So we are... We already have some pathways in place for, uh, for um, learners and uh, whether in individuals or as groups from organisations to, to join a particular a partner within the, the consortium and to work their way through towards a sort of higher level qualifications as they develop. We want to really um, help them to reach these objectives that might previously have been out of reach or even if they weren't out of reach, it was probably uh, some people, in fact, quite a lot of people think that um, sort of achieving high level qualifications is out of their reach and often it's not. And if you've got a, a clear pathway that facilitates their development, then uh, that really does kind of open their eyes. And they once they're, they're normally enthused, then it's just a matter of helping them to do that. So we're going to mentor, 
We're going to develop um, knowledge sharing events, conferences and so on. That's what we're aiming to do, as I mentioned, to be a primary choice um, for uh, organisations and individuals who are looking for excellence. And we've already got that, as I said, as individual contributors, but the consortium really is designed to be and will continue to be so much more than the sum of its parts. And it will be this very strong player, we hope and aim for it to be within, within the sector. And how can the readers of Security Matters become involved with the consortium, Phil? Right. OK, well, um, we are, we're certainly in the, in the uh, sort of initial stages now. But I mean, from our launch, even at this early stage, it's gone extremely well. There's a lot of interest being uh, generated and um, we, we've been uh, well received as, as to what we're doing. But first of all, uh, we're moving quickly towards developing an associate database. And that means that um, initially, um, all of anybody who's a learner on any of our current programs within uh, our partner uh, companies and organizations will automatically become associates. And that will give them uh, access to what is going on within the organization, any initiatives that uh, we will be coming out with. And as we go forward, events and so on, knowledge sharing events and so on. But that is not just for our, our current learners. Um, that is also going to be open to anyone who wants to go to our website, uh, thesecurityconsortium.com. Um, they can go there. They can go onto our associates page there, fill a, a short form in, and um, we will welcome them as associates. It's not selective. It is about having a growing uh, group of people who do have access to what we do. So that's the first thing at sort of grassroots immediate level. Um, we're looking to uh, bring on also uh, additional business partners. So the consortium is what we have at the moment. If other uh, companies and organizations feel that they would like to come on board to the consortium, it's not going to be, that is going to be selective um, because we need to be sure that they will be aligned with what we're trying to achieve and that um, they fit the bill if you like. But if they do want to, um, then there is a, again, we will set up a process really where the board will consider a partnership entrance from other organizations. So we'll be interested from hearing uh, hearing from those type of organisations. We've had one or two already who've been in touch. So we're hoping that that's going to grow as well. Overall, what we're trying to do really um, when we get these people involved, whether as individuals or as members of organisations, is to not only set off on that road to development or pick up what they've already developed, they may bring quite a lot with them already, and to um, really buy into this idea of innovation, looking to deliver services to individuals and organizations that require uh, sort of joined up, connected and, and stretching learning as well. It's not just about uh, turn up, do a training course and go away with a certificate. We do uh, ensure that um, there's a process, have to be process of, of assessment. That's what we do anyway, individually. But this, this um, idea that when somebody gets to the end of the pipeline or decides to step off our progressive learning journey, then they've achieved something. And not only have they got a certificate to show for it, but they've also developed that knowledge and capability. Thirdly, I guess the other thing that we will be looking at as a consortium is uh, is bidding for contracts and so on, where uh, particularly training and development is something that will benefit from a, a joined up approach from, from the various uh, component companies and organizations. And lastly, Phil, could you outline your long-term plans for the security consortium? I mean, first of all, we, we're really excited about the consortium and where it may go. We think that if new entrants into the sector or these established individuals and organizations can share our vision to innovate, to break barriers, to be inclusive and to give opportunities who may not have previously had them, then we think it can go as high and as far as it needs to. It needs to be uh, driven, and that's what we are doing. So uh, we're, we're very much um, focused on what we're aiming to achieve. 
Um, but we do have the ability, we have the networks and we have the capability to take what we do to a much wider global audience. We do that individually anyway, but as a collective, we'll continue to build and develop relationships so that those who do want the best that the UK can offer in this field are able to access what we do. We're really only going to be limited by uh, the ambition of others, really. If, if people get what we do, then we feel that the potential is, is if not unlimited, certainly you know, extremely high. It's, it's kind of a shared aspiration for, for all of us, as I mentioned, and it's a, as from the university point of view, that's what we've all, always done. We've always focused on developing career employability, and readiness for either progression or even entrance into into specific sectors. That's what we're about. We share that 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 vision, and that's what we're aiming to do. So that's our mission. We are uh, really looking to make an impact with that and to grow the consortium as much as possible to be a viable and, as I say, recognised element of the the UK and international security landscape for what we do. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Tony Porter, the Surveillance Camera Commissioner, and also Phil Wood from Buckinghamshire New University for their contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read all of the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our popular weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.